0: Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through 24 has been our opening text. We read it again. Then Yahweh told Moshe, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoke to you from heaven. You must not make gods of silver to rival me. You must not make gods of gold for yourselves. You must make an earthen altar for me. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats, as well as your cattle. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. May Yahweh bless His Word to our hearts today. Last week, we spent time going through the approved examples of altars and animal sacrifices in the book of Genesis. This week I'm going to move into approved examples after the Israelites settled in the Promised Land and had an established place of worship at a specific location at the tabernacle as well as an established priesthood of Levi or of Aaron in the land. Now this is significant because generally the objection that is given is that Genesis allows you to do this because, or allowed the patriarchs to do this, because it was prior to the establishment of the temple or the priesthood in the rest of the land after the temple and the priesthood are established they say there is a command to no longer offer sacrifices I take issue with that statement but that's what the objection says you can't offer the sacrifices outside of the land outside of the tabernacle and outside of the authorized son of Aaron Yahweh designates one place in the land and you shouldn't do these things you're actually violating the Torah if you do these things I think that even if the argument that's given carries a little bit of weight, that we still currently find ourselves in more of a Genesis circumstance rather than established theocracy in Israel circumstance. So I think that the approved examples in Genesis are sufficient. But today's lesson will move on to show the approval of this same practice in the time period of the book of Judges, the book of 2 Samuel, and the book of 2 Kings. And the approved examples we're going to look at are three. I dwindled it down to three. There's more than three, but I dwindled it down to three. good Baptist preacher always has three points in a closing. <laughs> <laughs> the approved examples we'll look at are Manoah, David, and Naaman. The other ones I'm going to mention so you can look them up in your personal study time. The other ones are Gideon in Judges 6. A group of Israelites at Mizpah in Judges 21. Saul in First Samuel 14. Samuel, maybe around First Samuel 8. And I think I am not missing any of the other ones. You can see me afterwards to make sure. We'll begin today with Manoah. Who is Manoah? Do you mean Noah, Brother Matthew? We talked about him last week. No, I do not mean Noah. I am speaking of the man in Judges 13 who lived in a town named Zorah. Zorah, according to Easton's Bible Dictionary, was about eight miles west of Jerusalem. Manoah was from the family or the tribe of Dan. He's not talked about much in Scripture, but what will help everyone is to speak here the name of Samson. If you didn't know who Manoah was, you absolutely know who Samson is. Samson's the strong man. Well, Manoah was Samson's dad, father and son. A little bit of backstory here to Manoah as it's in the book of Judges 13. The book of Judges, specifically chapter 2, it teaches us that as long as Joshua, the successor to Moses, as long as Joshua was alive, the Israelites as a nation, they served Yahweh. Judges 2 verse 7 specifically says this. Even after Joshua died, as long as the elders who knew Joshua personally were alive, the Israelites still served Yahweh. But after that generation died out, service to Yahweh as a whole discontinued. The next generation forgot Yahweh. Forgot doesn't mean they didn't know who He was, but it means the fear and the love of Him dwindled away. They forgot to serve Him due to the desire for the people to basically live like the heathens that were around them in the areas. So the pattern in the book of Judges is this. The children of Israel would do good, but then they would fall away into false worship and do bad. They would get punished, and then Yahweh would raise up a judge. In the book of Judges, the word judge, shoftim, I think, is in Hebrew. It stands for a leader. Not just a judge like you would think behind a bench with a gavel, but a leader in the community. Yahweh would raise that leader up. The judge would actually deliver the Israelites from their sins. And then they would do good again. And then after a while, they'd forget Yahweh and they'd relapse. And the cycle just continues. You can read about it if you read the book of Judges. I think it's 21 chapters. It's a good read. It shows us how important it is to have a righteous leader or leaders in our communities. Um, Righteous leaders are put in place by Yahweh to set an example for a community and to keep wickedness at bay. Moses was gone for 40 days and the Israelites already started to act up. They said, where is Moses? Let's make a calf. (laughs) Judges 13, Manoah. Judges 13 begins at a time period of transgression for the nation as a whole. But always remember, just because the nation as a whole is in transgression, that does not mean that there are not individual righteous people within that nation, even if they're minute, even if they're a small portion. It's the same thing when the nation as a whole is righteous. That doesn't mean every single individual person is doing right. There can still be individuals doing wickedness, but the nation as a whole can either be righteous or wicked. Well... During this time, they were in captivity, semi-captivity, to the Philistines for about 40 years. And during this bad time, Manoah's wife was barren. She had never had a child, and she couldn't have a child. And an angel of Yahweh appeared to her and told her, You're going to have a son, and he's going to be a Nazarite from his birth. The Nazarite goes back to the book of Numbers, chapter 6. The word Nazirite is based on the root word Nazir, which means to be consecrated or set apart to the Creator. And there were specific instructions for a Nazirite. Uh, most well-known was a Nazirite, whether a man or a woman. Both genders could take the vow. You were not allowed to even trim your hair, and you were not allowed to drink any wine or strong drink. And there's other things as well, but those are the two most known. You can read about it in number 6. The angel even told Manoah's wife, I don't want you to drink any wine or strong drink while you're pregnant. And the angel said, Your child is going to begin to save the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. And so she went and told her husband about it. Um, and in Judges 13, 8 through 10, we read this. Manoah prayed to Yahweh and said, Please, Adonai, let the man of Elohim who, sent, who you sent come again to us and teach us what we should do for the boy who will be born. Elohim listened to Manoah, and the angel of Yahweh came again to the woman. She was sitting in the field, and her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman ran quickly to her husband and told him, The man who came to me today has just come back. Well, after this, the man of Elohim, the angel sent by Yahweh, tells Manoah basically the same thing he'd already told Manoah's wife. So he repeats the message to Manoah. And Manoah says in 15 and 16 of the chapter, Please stay here and we will prepare a young goat for you. Then, in verse 16, the angel says to him, If I stay, I won't eat your food, but if you want to prepare a burnt offering, offer it to Yahweh. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of Yahweh. Now, it's not the purpose of this message to enter into who this angel of Yahweh was. I know we've got differences of opinion here in the congregation as to who this angel was. That's not the purpose of the sermon. I'm not trying to bypass it. I'm just trying to keep my focus on the offering here. Notice the angel just nonchalantly says, I'm not going to eat it, but if you want to, go ahead and offer a burnt offering. Verses nineteen through twenty three. Manoah took a young goat and a grain offering and offered them on a rock. That should take your mind to Exodus twenty twenty five. If you make an altar of stone, make sure it's not cut stone or hewn stone. So he offers this to Yahweh on a rock. And he did a wonderful thing while Manoah and his wife were watching. The he there probably is referring to Yahweh. When the flame went up from the altar to the sky, the angel of Yahweh went up in its flame. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell face down on the ground. The angel of Yahweh did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah realized that it was the angel of Yahweh. We're going to die, he said to his wife, because we have seen Elohim. But his wife said to him, if Yahweh had intended to kill us, he would not have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering from us. And He would not have shown us all these things or spoken to us now like this. Amen. The main point here is that we have a man from the tribe of Dan offering up a burnt offering and grain offering on a rock in the town of Zora. There is no temple. There is no Levite priest. Only a husband and a wife and the angel. And one may say and have said, Well, the angel told him to do it. But the narrative here does not read as though the offering was something out of the ordinary. As a matter of fact, when the angel tells him to do it, Manoah acts like this is something that's doable. He's not surprised. He's not thinking it's anything extraordinary. The angel just tells him, if you want to offer it, go ahead and offer it to Yahweh. Manoah doesn't balk. There's no indication in the text that this was otherwise forbidden, and Yahweh accepts the offering. Now granted, this was during a time when Israel was handed over to the Philistines in a semi-captivity. And maybe they didn't have a central location of worship or even a completely active Levite priesthood. I grant that. But isn't that the point? Are not we in a similar circumstance today? I'm not saying the government of Conyers is Philistine. Although some of them act like Philistines. (laughs) But I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying we're in a similar circumstance outside of a theocracy. And if Manoah could do this during the time period of semi-captivity, why can't Matthew do this? Why can't Matthew? I don't know if I'm from a tribe of Israel. Maybe, maybe not. We'll get to an example later on in the lesson that will show you that it really doesn't matter. My next case example is from 2 Samuel 24. Now, there is parallels here. 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 tell us of the same account, probably two different authors. So you need to read both of these in your study time. I'm only going to go over 2 Samuel 24 today just to kind of hone in. And this is with King David. Now, some people may think, well, King David could offer a sacrifice away from the central worship location and without a Levite because, after all, he was the king. David definitely wasn't a Levite. He was from what tribe? Yehuda, Yehuda, Judah, from the tribe of Judah. David being the king would not allow him to just casually do something that was forbidden and Yahweh be okay with it. According to Deuteronomy 17, a king was required to handwrite a copy of the Torah and not just handwrite it, but read in it every day of his life so that he may learn to do what? To obey it and to rule by it, govern by it. So the king was supposed to set an example of lawkeeping for the kingdom. Now, we know that didn't always pan out like that. As a matter of fact, there are more bad kings than there are good kings, especially when we look at the nation of Israel as opposed to the nation of Judah after the split. But, regardless, Deuteronomy 17 tells us how it's supposed to be. Okay, So, the backdrop here in 2 Samuel 24 is David had committed a sin in numbering the warriors in Israel. David took a census at the beginning of the chapter and some people have wondered why David's census is condemned. Why was Yahweh so upset at David numbering the troops? The best thing that I can come up with from my studies is that it had to do with David's distrust in the power of Yahweh for warfare and his reliance on the power of man for warfare. In other words, he saw these great armies and instead of trusting that the battle is Yahweh's, 2nd Chronicles 20, and that Yahweh can save by many or by few, 1st Samuel 14, David said, oh, "I'm going to count my sheep. <laughs> I'm going to count my warriors." I'm going to show them how many I've got. The whole land's going to find out about it. And they're going to be scared of us because we're such a great mighty nation. And Yahweh said, no, 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 no. David, you're puffing yourself up too much. The righteous man is the man that humbles himself and realizes you can't even win a battle if I'm not on your side, Brother Jerry. It doesn't really matter how powerful your army is. (laughs) Right? Some trust in horses. Some trust in chariots. We trust in the name of Yahweh. That's what the psalmist said. I think that's why David got in trouble and I think Yahweh stirred up David not in the sense that he tempted him or caused him to sin James one thirteen goes in contrary to that I think Yahweh released his hand of mercy from David and then David did exactly what his flesh wanted to do I think that's the best way to understand that and there are some texts that say that Satan is the one that stirred up David and that could be the arch enemy of Yahweh it could be David's flesh it could be Uh, the adversarial armies that were trying to oppose David, uh, the word Satan doesn't always have to mean uh, a proper noun. So afterward, David realizes what he's done. He realized, I trust in my arm instead of Yahweh's. And he says, I've sinned greatly. But Yahweh punishes. He gives David three choices for punishment. And Yahweh punishes by sending the plague through the angel of Yahweh. And Yahweh must have been very upset because 70,000 Israelite warriors were killed. That's a lot of fighting men. This was all accomplished through Yahweh's angel. And the angel of Yahweh was about to destroy the city of Jerusalem, but Yahweh had mercy. It says he relented. And he told the angel, Enough, withdraw your hand now. Put your sword up. Now, when the angel stopped, the angel was standing on a threshing floor. A threshing floor is talking about where they would thresh wheat. And this threshing floor, floor belonged to a man named Orana or Ornan, depending on which text you read. And he was a Jebusite. And Jebusites, if I'm not mistaken, were within the Canaanites, right? Yeah. So that definitely was not where the temple was. <laughs> and it definitely wasn't where the Levites were active. It was just a threshing floor. Let's read it in Second Samuel 24, 18 through 25. Gad came to David that day and said to him... By the way, Gad is the prophet earlier in the chapter. He's the seer or the prophet. And he says to David, Go up and set up an altar to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. David went up in obedience to Gad's command just as Yahweh had commanded. Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So he went out and bowed to the king with his face to the ground. Aaron said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David replied, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to Yahweh, so the plague on the people may be halted. Notice that David's building the altar is seen by him as an outward act of repentance. He understands this. 22, Arana said to David, My lord the king may take whatever he wants and offer it. Here are the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledges and ox yokes for wood. My king, Arana gives everything here to the king. Then he said to the king, May Yahweh your Elohim accept you. The king, David, answered Arana and says this in verse 24, No, I insist on buying it from you for a price for I will not offer to Yahweh my Elohim burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 ounces of silver, and he built an altar to Yahweh there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then Yahweh answered prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel ended. So here we have King David, a Judahite. He offered an acceptable sacrifice to Yahweh away from the tabernacle, away from the priesthood, at the threshing floor of a Jebusite. And it was accepted by Yahweh as a prayer of repentance. Some say, well, he was commanded. The prophet Gad commanded him to do it. That's true. But do you think that the prophet was commanded him to do something that was contrary to the Torah? I don't. I think the prophet had Exodus 20 and 24 in mind. And I think he told David, you do this, the plague will be halted. What's interesting is the parallel account in First Chronicles 21 reads like this. At that time, the tabernacle of Yahweh, which Moshe made in the desert, and the altar of burnt offering were at the high place in Gideon, or in Gibeon. I think that might be a misprint. Maybe it should be a B, Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of Elohim, because he was terrified of the sword of the Lord's angel. Then David said, listen to what he says in 22 and 1. This, speaking of the threshing floor that he bought, this is the house of Yahweh Elohim and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. I believe David was invoking Exodus 20 verse 24. You must make an altar of earth and sacrifice your burnt offerings and your fellowship offerings on it. I will come and bless you in every place that I cause my name to be remembered. Yahweh was causing his name to be remembered on the threshing floor of this Jebusite. And it was turned from an ordinary place to a holy place. Even the very wood, the yoke of Arana's oxen was used for the sacrifice. Yahweh took the ordinary and made it extraordinary. That's example two. My last example for today is found in Second Kings 5. I want to encourage you to read the entire chapter of Second Kings 5, maybe tonight before you go to bed or sometime this week. It's a great chapter. I could probably spend a whole month teaching through 2 Kings 5 because there's so much you can pull out of it in practicality for our lives today after you teach expositorily from it. In this chapter, there's this commander. He's a commander of the Aramean army, and his name is Naaman. He's a non-Israelite. Yeshua actually mentions Naaman in Luke chapter 4. Yeshua calls him Assyrian, which is just another name for Aramean. Naaman was a brave warrior, but he had a terrible skin disease. The KJV says that he was a leper. Now, there was this young Israelite captive girl that had been taken by Naaman, and she lived with Naaman and his wife, and this captive Israelite girl served the wife of Naaman in the home. And she had been telling Naaman, you need to go to the prophet of Yahweh in Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Go to the prophet in Samaria because Naaman was trying to figure out how can I get cured of my leprosy how can I get rid of this skin disease so Naaman goes and Naaman takes with him catch this he must have been very wealthy he takes 750 pounds of silver 150 pounds of gold and 10 changes of clothes why do you think he takes them he's trying to give a gift he's going to tell him, prophet I'll give you this can you heal me but Naaman doesn't go to the prophet first, instead he goes to the king, probably to get permission, the king of Israel. And the king tears his clothes and thinks Naaman is crazy. But there's this prophet named Elisha or Elisha, who hears about the encounter and he sends a message to the king. And he tells through the messenger, tells Naaman, Come and see me. Now remember. Naaman goes to the king first. Kings are powerful men, but kings are not always spiritual men. The most spiritual man in Israel is always the prophet or woman, the prophetess, because there was both, prophets and prophetesses. Naaman goes and he stands outside of Elisha's house and he knocks on the door. And Elisha doesn't move. He stays in the bed and he tells his messenger Gehazi, his servant, he says, go check the door. And Gehazi goes out, opens up the door, looks at Naaman. Naaman sees the servant. Where's Elisha? Ah, he's in the back bedroom. He's taking a break. He says, uh, he wants me to tell you, you need to go down to the Jordan River and wash yourself or dip in it seven times and your leprosy will be gone. And Naaman gets upset. Naaman gets so upset. First he says, there's cleaner rivers I could go dip in. And then he says, why can't the prophet come out and wave his hand over the skin disease and it be gone like that? Why can't he do some miraculous thing? Why can't I get my spotlight miracle? So Naaman starts to leave in a huff. He's going to go back to his land. But his servants stop him and they say, Father, Master. Actually, they, they call him Father. A lot of times if you had somebody of higher rank, you'd call him Father. They say, Father, if the prophet would have told you to do something big, wouldn't you have done it? Naaman says, sure. And they say, well, if he has just told you to do something little, why, why don't you want to do it? So Naaman says, okay. He goes down to the Jordan River. He dips into Jordan River seven times. And after the seventh time, he comes up. And his leprosy is gone. Now, that doesn't mean that the Jordan River was magic water. You know what healed Naaman? Yahweh Yahweh. through his obedience. He did what the prophet told him to do. You know, I could preach a sermon on this and I don't want to go on a rabbit trail, but the Bible teaches that part of our obedience to Yahweh, to the Messiah, is to be baptized in the Messiah. And the Bible even says in a few places that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't mean that the water's magic. It just means you're doing what was commanded to do. That's a beautiful example here. So Naaman is cleansed. He goes back to Elijah's or Elisha's house. I get those mixed up sometimes. And he knocks on the door. And I bet that was some knock when he knocked the second time. Because <laughs> he was cleansed. But he says in 2 Kings five fifteen. I know there is no mighty one in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. Now, this time Elisha is before him. But Elisha refuses any money even after Naaman, the Scripture says Naaman tries to urge him to take a gift, take some money. Boy, that's completely backwards from the prosperity preachers, isn't it? A lot of them say you can't even get your miracle unless you sow a seed. The miracle of the $1,000 seed Mike Murdoch talks about. The thousand dollar seed, Jesse Duplantis. I heard him say the other day that he was asking the Lord uh, what the Lord would have him do, and the Lord, he said, the Lord spoke back to me and said, "Well, Jesse, what do you think? What do you think about it, Jesse?" Like the Lord was asking Jesse Duplantis what to do. That is a bunch of hogwash. It's ridiculous. Those are not men of Yahweh, by the way. Those are not men of Yahweh. Proverbs twenty-eight nine says, "He that turneth his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination." And those men directly teach that you don't have to obey the commandments of Yahweh. So, Elisha is not a prosperity preacher. He says, I don't want your gift. And he could have took all 750 pounds of silver. But he said, no, I don't want your gift. Now, what comes next after this, it is peculiar if you don't know the scriptures that have come before 2 Kings 5. But I don't think that it's going to be too peculiar to you all because we've been studying about this for the last few weeks. We've been learning about the altar of earth and the sacrifices offered on it from Exodus twenty twenty four. So after the prophet Elisha refuses to take the money from Naaman, this is what Naaman says, Naaman the Syrian, the Aramean commander. 2 Kings 5-17, he says, If you won't take the gift, please let two mule loads of dirt be given to your servant, That's me, Naaman says. For your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to any other mighty one but Yahweh. Now the text is explicit in telling us Naaman wanted the dirt because he wanted to offer a burnt offering which is an animal sacrifice. So we might think if we don't know Exodus 20, why does he want dirt? Why does he want dirt? Some commentators try too hard and they miss the obvious. He asks for a pile of dirt, enough that has to be pulled by two mules because he wants to build an altar of earth. Somehow he knows. And he sees the land on which he is standing as sacred because the prophet healed him through his word. And so he wants to take some of that land back with him to his hometown and dedicate a place to worship Yahweh. Now, I'm not the first person to make the connection here. Most of the time when you make these neat connections, if you find scholarly material, you'll see that people have made the connection before you. It just don't get talked about a lot in church. E.W. Bullinger in his commentary says here on this text in 2 Kings 5.17, Earth equals soil. Naaman may have heard of Exodus (laughs) 20.24. Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary says in part, two mules burden of earth with which to make an altar, Exodus 2024, 20, to the God of Israel. So both of these commentaries mention Exodus 2024 20, at 2 Kings 5:17. Now this one I find most interesting. I have, I don't have the complete Torah set. I plan on getting two more because I love to buy books. <laughs> My wife always says, you like books too much. Whoever gets my library when I die, I hope they like to study because you're going to get a gold mine. So, I got a lot of good material there. My JPS Torah commentary on the book of Exodus. Page 116. In Exodus twenty twenty four, in part it says this, quote, altar of earth, one made by heaping up a mound of earth in an open field. It was just such an altar that the Syrian commander probably had in mind, as told in 2 Kings 5.17, when he requested two mule loads of earth of the land of Israel to take back home with him. There in Damascus, he could offer sacrifices on the earthen altar. Elisha grants Naaman's request in verse 19. He says, go in peace. And in case somebody wants to try to say go in peace, doesn't mean Elisha agreed. If you study that phrase in the Tanakh, go in peace, that is a phrase that is used throughout the Tanakh, meaning, yes, you may. Yes, you may. And you can do your study material and study time on that. So, the prophet Elisha respected Naaman's desire to build an altar and sacrifice to Yahweh and to do so, this is what's so powerful, to do so in a foreign land. To take it back with him to a foreign land. As a matter of fact, I don't have this in my notes, but the next verse in 2 Kings 5, 18, it's not one I've ever heard preached, but Naaman asks for an exemption clause with the prophet. And he says, prophet, when I go back, I am the king of Aram's right-hand man. And we're going to have to go into the temple, to our temple, and he's going to bow before the deity of the weather named Ramon. And he said, I'm going to have to bow with him because I'm his right hand man. I want to be excused when I bow because I'm just doing an outward gesture but I'm really not bowing in my heart to Ramon. And Elisha says, Go in peace. Showing that the heart and the mind matter more than the outward. I'm not saying the outward doesn't mind but I'm just saying we serve Yahweh in our mind and our heart primarily. Primarily. And Elisha granted Naaman's request. That's a whole whole message I could probably do on that, but you can you can read it. So the reason I think Elisha granted the request was I think Elisha understood Exodus twenty twenty four, an altar of earth shalt thou build. If you build an altar to Yahweh, it should not be done haphazardly. Offering an animal religiously, killing an animal, should not be done casually. There should be thought and prayer put into each. And I would recommend that if you ever do this, there should be a lot of thought and prayer put into it. You should do it in a reverent manner. Just like if you come before Yahweh in prayer. Sometimes I think we forget that. When we come before Yahweh in prayer, He's the King of the whole earth. And when we enter our closet, we should bow in reverence before Him. I might get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyhow. I think we could learn something here from Muslim people. And that they get on their knees and bow down with their face to the ground when they pray. You know that the Hebrew word for worship means to bow with your face to the ground. That's what it means. A lot of times kings were worshipped. They would come up to kings and they would bow down and kiss the ring on their finger. In homage, in obeisance, in respect. So when we do these things to Yahweh... Whether it be prayer, whether it be the Passover we keep, or whether it be an altar, building an altar and offering a firstling of the flock, it should all be done reverently. It should be done with care, be done slowly, making sure you don't make any mistake to the best of your ability. It's holy space and it's holy time when you do that. But all that does not mean that it shouldn't be done. (laughs) And it doesn't mean it's unlawful to do it just because we're in Georgia. If Naaman could do it in Damascus, why can't I do it in Georgia? Now, I don't have any dirt from Prophet Elisha's property. (laughs) I wouldn't mind if I had some dirt from his property. But I don't have any. But I have consecrated this property that I have, this little piece of land, these three acres Yahweh's given me. I've consecrated it to Yahweh. I've consecrated it to Yahweh. We've consecrated the land on our, where our assembly sits to Yahweh. And so in a manner of speaking, it has went from unholy to holy just like the wood of the oxen yoke on a rhinos threshing floor. Now I realize that literally obeying Exodus twenty twenty four sounds strange. It might even sound to some Christians sacrilegious. Matter of fact, some people will think that Brother Matthew denies the Messiah by all of this but hopefully you understood the message I taught a couple of weeks ago on the better blood of Messiah sure. this absolutely has nothing to do with our eternal forgiveness, it has nothing to do with our eternal redemption, what I'm talking about this is an act of obedience, this is how we worship Yahweh, this is thanking Yahweh this is how he wants to be told I appreciate you in bringing him an expensive gift like David said, I refuse to offer something that doesn't cost me anything he paid that Jebusite money so it sounds strange to a lot of modern people but since when does anything that we do for Yahweh not sound a little bit strange to people if you hadn't figured it out yet we are strange (laughs) so if you plan on coming to fellowship here for a long while just go ahead and get it in your mind people's going to think that you're strange (laughs) worldly people, Christian people they're going to think that you're strange May Yahweh help all of us be obedient to His Word. Um, I think that what I've shown is sufficient to prove that there's nothing wrong with building an altar and, and offering a sacrifice on it. When I was growing up in church, I thought the altar was something that you came down to after the preacher preached and knelt down before and that's where you got saved. I'm not necessarily against all of that. I don't believe that you have to go down to an altar to get saved. I think that Yahweh is just as powerful in the back of the church as He is in the front of the church. Um, But I'm not against somebody that genuinely confesses their sin and repents. I'm not knocking that. Please don't mistake me for that. If a person goes down to a church altar and repents of their sin and asks Yahweh to forgive them and He forgives them, I'm all for that. I think that's beautiful. But that's not the biblical definition of an altar. Altars were used in the Scriptures for sacrifice. Some with blood, some without blood. May Yahweh help us to to believe His Word. Amen. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall think on it day and night. Be careful to do what Yah tells you to do so that you will have good success. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. But stay on the narrow path. Be careful to do what Yah tells you to do so that you will have good success. May Yahweh bless you and keep you. I love everybody. Shalom.